Welcome to Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff, where we interview newsmakers, storytellers, and all-around interesting people. Sit back, relax, uh, unless you're driving, and enjoy the show. Here's Jackson. Hello, hello, hello. I am Jackson Huff. This is Not in a Huff. Thanks so much for joining me. As always, really appreciate it. This week, I'm interviewing Patty Bear. Now, this week, we're going to kind of mix several different kind of conversations I've had in the past, conversations about parents who have done interesting things, conversation about different religions we don't know about, conversation about um, people breaking the glass ceiling on doing some, some really awesome stuff as well. Patty wrote a book about her childhood and what she she did uh, did after that and and to to overcome some of the hardships. So Patty was was raised in the Mennonite faith, uh, one that uh, people don't know as much about. You know, we we've heard of Amish. We know that Mennonites are are kind of similar to that. Um, Patty's going to kind of talk about what the differences is and and what the similarities are. Uh, but we're mostly, when it comes to her childhood, going to talk about her experiences with her father. Her father was excommunicated from the Mennonite church. Uh, That means that her mother, as a member of the church, had to shun him as well. Um, Her father kind of took the the church, took the the family to court about uh, this particular shunning, this particular action. It made national headlines back in the 70s. The case uh, and uh, and other cases went all the way up to the Supreme Court uh, when it comes to the difference between church and state. Um, we're going to talk about how her father was uh, w- was abusive in in many ways, um, definitely mentally, and uh, and stalked them when they left, and and did a lot of really really crazy things. We're going to talk about the impact that played. We're going to talk about the impact that almost everything that happened the public was on her father's side and that's largely because um, her father was really really kind of good kind of playing the media and you know the Mennonite church as a whole are people who don't really want to take the spotlight they want to kind of be you know non-aggressive kind of want to be passive and and not uh, not take the spotlight and the father was just eating it up so you know he kind of turned the world against uh against Patty's family, against Patty's mom. So it was a very interesting, terrible time, really, for for Patty. Uh, We'll talk about that, uh, but we're also going to talk about the amazing things that Patty has done in her life. In high school, she developed a love for flying that then took her to the Air Force and the Air Force Academy. She was the third Air Force Academy class that included women. We're going to talk about her time in um, the Air Force. She then left the Air Force and was a commercial pilot. So she, as the title kind of talks about, she went from plane, as in plane dress, to plane, as in driving a uh, and piloting a plane. So quite a turnaround from somebody who you know, is, is relatively, uh, I guess, primitive in, in their ways and in, in playing dress uh, to then, you know, being a pilot. So I think that that's a fascinating conversation as well. Uh, we'll talk just a, a little bit about all of that. I think that that uh, deserves a longer conversation at, at some point. But uh, this is a really, really great interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. Here's Patty Bear. 
I'm here today with Patty Bear. Miss Bear, how are you? I'm good. How are you? It's a pleasure to be here, Jackson. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. I really appreciate it. If you would, just introduce yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a pilot. I'm an author and uh, a trail guide. And I grew up among the Old Order uh, Mennonite community, among the plain people of Pennsylvania. And my call to adventure came through trauma at the age of eight and made national news for a while. Um, but it eventually led me out of that insular world and into a uh, career as a military pilot and then as an airline captain. Yeah, and we're going to kind of unpack unpack all of that. But I want to start with um, you know, you talking about how you grew up in, in the Mennonite community. On this podcast, I've talked to people in, in a lot of different faiths, even some as, I guess, secretive and as old as like Hasidic Judaism. I've talked to somebody who was a a priest in the Dudist religion, which was interesting wow. too. So all kinds of different things. Um, but I never want to assume people know, you know, a, a lot about a lot of different things. So it's a huge undertaking, but in very few words, what is the Mennonite faith? Well, the Mennonites come from the Anabaptists in um, Europe and they broke away from the Catholics. Uh, they are Christian, but they broke away from the Catholics back in the 1500s due to a disagreement over uh, infant baptism. And it was a, a pretty big deal because they were persecuted and executed for that belief system. So that's a background where they come from. And I can tell you about what they believe in if if you want to hear about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't want it to be, I don't want you to have to go into a huge amounts of detail, but yeah, just some basis if you would. Sure. So the the infant baptism is kind of a core of it. Um, the other thing is they believe in excommunication and shunning. So if you uh, you basically get two warnings, you get talked to in private, and then if there's still a problem, then you get shunned. And shunning means that you're um, kind of what it sounds like. You're shunned from your community. Um, you're not allowed to, in, in our background, you're not allowed to eat with the person. You're not allowed to do business with them. Um, and had a, a number of other implications. Um, they believe in separation from the world, so it's very insular. Um, there were uh, they dressed differently. Um, all the women in our community wore the exact same style of clothing: these long dark dresses, white cap, black bonnet, or dark gray bonnet. Um, it's very it's a very patriarchal society. So the men, men and women are separated in the church. The women sit on one side, the men on the other. Um, a lot of uh, obedience to the ministers and then obedience to the husband and fathers. And that's it, it's just very insular. So you wouldn't do a lot of the jobs that that people would commonly think of or might take for granted, like a real estate agent. You couldn't be a real estate agent, generally speaking. So, right. And I, I, I'm in Indiana, so I know that a lot of this took place in Pennsylvania. We've got a, a fair share of, of people in this kind of world too, you know, Shipshawana, that kind of area. But it's, it's, uh, I guess the, the thing that people know more about is like the Amish community, but I know there's Amish and Mennonite and Quaker. Let's talk about just the difference between Mennonite and Amish. Cause I feel like the word Amish people know a little bit better. Yeah, so they're very similar. I think of them as cousins because they do come from the same Anabaptist roots. So within that, uh, for the Mennonites, there's a huge range of Mennonites. You'll have, on the one hand, you'll have Mennonites that don't look like they dress very differently. They just sort of dress conservatively. Then you'll have Mennonites 
where the women wear the most distinctively different uniforms, generally speaking, in, in both the communities, Amish and the Mennonites. So they might wear like these little um, print dresses with small white caps. And then you have the old order Mennonite, which is what I came from, where um, the, the women wear the, the clothing that I described before. The other, so, so there's a pretty broad range there with the Mennonites. It's not there so much with the Amish. The Amish, uh, one of the big differences is they drive horse and buggies. The, the old order Mennonites will drive, um, mostly will drive black cars. Um, the, the old order Mennonites and Amish don't do television, don't go to the movies, no jewelry, no makeup. Um, so my parents didn't even wear wedding rings because that wasn't allowed. So, so old order Mennonites and Amish are really fairly similar with those differences. I got you. I got you. So we've, we've got you growing up in that world, you know, kind of a closed off world, one that, uh, you know, I guess doesn't have a lot of the worldly beings that uh, a lot of people are used to here and, and in, in other kind of religions. But I want to start before you, I guess, Things went south. Talk about growing up in in that uh, in that faith. So before things went south. Before things went like? south. Yeah. Gotcha. So um, I grew up on a four hundred acre potato farm. We lived um, in the. It was a beautiful place, and Pennsylvania countryside is beautiful by a creek. And um, so we had. It was a wonderful place to play and explore. But we also worked very hard from uh, an early age, which is uh, is very common to both the Amish and the Mennonites, plain people. Children work from a very early age and have responsibility very early. So I was probably picking potatoes in the field around four years old. We worked before and after school. We worked in the summer um, and we worked uh, in the home and, and outside of the home. And so, for instance, I was I um, learned to. Uh, sew and bake very, very early. I learned to bake and I was cooking meals for company by the time 12 to 14 people, by the time I was like 11 or 12. Mm. Um, so we had really good food and fresh food and it was, we didn't know any different and everybody we knew, we went to public school, but um, we didn't go to um, friends' houses and they didn't come to our house. We We played with our cousins. We played with people at uh, members, children in our church. So we, even though we went to public school, it was still very insular, played with our siblings. Yeah. And, and we say before things went south, because in 1972, I think it was the summer before or after your second grade year that, that things did, uh, things did start happening. And I think the, the big culprit to a lot of the issues was that your, your father was excommunicated from the church. We already talked about how that happens within the Mennonite faith. I want you to kind of talk about what happened, why he was excommunicated and what that meant for your family. So as children, it was really confusing. We started having these meetings, these kind of secretive meetings that, that were really unusual in our home and nobody would tell us what they were about. And of course, kids, we wanted to know. So we were banished upstairs and we we laid our heads against the floorboards trying to hear what's going on because it was clearly some big deal. Um, and we didn't really find out until my father got excommunicated and um, we weren't allowed to go to that sermon that Sunday. So then we knew that was kind of a big deal. So he was excommunicated for raillery, which is a biblical sin. And 
it wasn't until I was researching that I realized it was always kind of confusing, like, aside from that term, what did he get excommunicated for? And when I went back to look at the origin, it was so obscure that it was kind of head scratching. So essentially, he got into an argument with the church authorities about whether this couple got communion. Um, they were, I guess, they were in disharmony. They were having a little bit of um, marital not getting along so well, and they were given communion. And he objected to that and then wouldn't let that go. So hence the charge of raillery. So that's where it all started. And then, um, but it blew up because when when he started explaining that to people, um, it didn't really catch on as you can imagine. You're like, what? Like, what is that issue? But then um, because he was shunned and um, because my mother was a member of the church, then she had to shun him. And when he started telling people that, that caught on and that really captured people's imagination. And that's what landed him on the front page of the New York Times. And then that issue, along with the court cases and things, are what kept him in the news, national news, international news for quite a long time. Yeah. And I think that would be the most shocking part to people that are kind of outside of this world is that your your mother did kind of go along with the church and, and shun him as well. Well, I mean, what was what was that like as a as a kid? I feel like that's a very you know, a lot of crazy things happen and we'll get to that, but that has to be a pretty traumatic thing that, Hey, I don't know what's happening downstairs. Now I understand that he is, you know, being removed from the church and now mom is shunning him too. What, what was that like? No, it was really confusing. And the shunning was, uh, so from our perspective of what we could see, the shunning only consisted of not being able to eat at the same table with him at the same time. But of course, it has other implications in marriage, as you can imagine. Hmm. Mostly what we saw was his violence. Um, so he became very upset about it. And then, um, so on the face of it, it sounds like this horrific thing. But we gradually, and I, somewhat as a child, but certainly as we grew up, we became aware of more of the backstory and what hadn't been told in the newspapers. And so my father had been excommunicated eight years prior as well. I'm not sure for what, probably something similar, a dispute with the church. And at that time, my mother had been also uh kicked out, had been excommunicated so that it wouldn't cause problems with him, even though she hadn't done anything wrong. Mm. So then she was shunned, which meant that she didn't have any, her family. And you have to remember in these type of communities, all of your social circles there, your all of your family, your mother, your father, your, your sons and daughters, your cousins, your siblings, everybody you know is in this church. So when you're shunned, you lose your entire social circle. So because of my father's actions before and him getting excommunicated, she uh, was shunned to prevent a problem, but it cost her quite big as well. So then the second time around when he was he was excommunicated and he refused to let this issue die, she was like, I'm not going to pay the price for his behavior again. Hmm. And she was kind of a, a, she was between a rock and a hard place too. I, I realized um Sometime by the, around the sixth grade, uh, during a court case that came up with this, that it was essentially a property dispute between the church. Like, who owned the wife and children? Who did they have? Who did they have to be obedient to? The bishops or my father? So either way, no matter how she chose, it was a no-win situation. So it sounds awful on the surface, but if you understand the backstory, it makes a lot more sense. 
Yeah. And the other thing too, in, in, you know, checking out your book that kind of confused me and makes it really, really a difficult situation for your mother was that, I mean, I understand that the church was, you know, trying, just like you said, it was a, it was a kind of battle to see who exactly owned the family, which I, I, I kind of hate, hate that term, but it was, it was a backstory with that. And it was trying to figure that out. But at the same time, you know, you talked about how the church was a patriarchal society and you were talking about how, you know, the church was telling your mom just to try to make the marriage work. Like how can they one at one point say you need to be shunning him and, you know, not eating at the same table, not doing other things that marriage provides, but still stay married. That there's, that there's not a link between that. That doesn't make sense. No, it does not. And that was the, that was a double bind that she was always in. It was like, he wasn't going to do anything to, it was for him, it was always my way or the highway. And he wasn't going to do anything to make it work. He wasn't going to bend and she was supposed to bend, but she was already, uh, uh, there was a lot of violence there and it just eventually became untenable. And we left one day in school, we left home and we never went back. Didn't we, we left that morning, didn't know we were never coming back. Yeah, and I want you just to to briefly talk about some of the struggles and and violence and harassment and things that you did deal with because that's a, a large part of your book talking about your childhood and growing up with you know all of these different things happening. So so cover that a little bit if you would. Sure. So it began that summer right after he was excommunicated, and there was a lot of chasing around and terrorizing and a lot of violence that I won't get into the detail here, but. Um, and then there was uh, there was always this thing with my father about a loyalty test. So a loyalty uh, between uh, were we loyalty to, loyal to him or we were loyal to our mother, which of course for a child is an untenable position to be put in. One of the things he did is he took us one time down to my uncle who was the bishop, and we didn't know why we were going. My uncle didn't know why we were there, and he sat us kids there and made us choose which one we loved most, our uncle or our father. And then whoever didn't choose him, he he left them there. He refused to um he wouldn't he wouldn't pay for things. So my mother was left with six kids and of course it's a traditional, very traditional um household that she didn't have any other means of income and no education for that. So he refused to provide. And then he actually came in with his hired uh, man who had worked for him, who was in an, un, in an untenable position himself. And they came in and hauled away our freezers full of food that um, we existed on without money. So a lot of things like that. And then after we moved out, then he hired a private detective and he came around and he terrorized our, our terrorized us at home and eventually kidnapped um, my brother and my sister at, at different times, um, breaking into the house. So it was just, we lived in terror. We lived on the run from him for quite a long time. And the house we moved into, my mother chose because there were so many doors to escape from. That was her, that was her rationale. Hmm. Yeah. And, and all, while all this is happening, like you mentioned that it had gotten kind of media attention. There was, there was, uh, you know, stories in the New York Times and on evening news and uh, tons of local newspapers. And again, we talked about earlier how this is a relatively closed off community. It's a community that, you know, doesn't deal with a lot of uh, worldly things. And then this was all happening. So 
I guess it's a two-part question. The first part is what was that like for you seeing that and dealing with that within your community? And then also, I, I guess I just wonder what made people so interested in it. Was it because it was coming from something that people don't know a lot about and it was just interesting to, to get some insight or, or I, I wonder about both of those parts? So I'll answer the second part of that question first. I think it was really intriguing to people, um, A, the, the plain people. People are always interested in cultures they don't know anything about that seem really different. So I think that was a big part of it. And then I think, um, without a doubt, the concept that his rights were being violated as a husband, as a man, was really compelling. He had an enormous amount of sympathy for that. Um, so it just, it just had all the elements of a really juicy story. And then to combine with that, then, um, he had a court case, he sued the church and then he lost that. But then on appeal, the Pennsylvania Supreme court heard it. And then because it had church and state issues, there was a question about whether it might go to the, um, U S Supreme court. So they had some you know, pretty heavy hitting news coverage. And then he was in 1979, he was involved in another court case, uh, criminal court case um, that made national news. So it just was a juicy story. Um, different, uh, had a lot of elements that intrigued the the, the public and uh, the media. What was it like for us as children? Um, it was, um, it was, it's hard even to describe what that was like. We had reporters coming up our driveway and we had this long, really private driveway, people showing up and they wanted comments from my mother and my mother, um, you know, one of the precepts of um, Mennonite Amish religion is, is non-resistance. And my mom just didn't, wouldn't respond, wouldn't address the charges, the things that he was saying. Um, probably wouldn't have made any difference if she did, but she didn't say anything. And um, so we would hear about this through him and he he promoted a very false story that we knew was false. One of the things he promoted, besides the fact that my mom was shunning him, is that his own children were shunning him, which he knew wasn't true because as children, we weren't yet accepted into the church. So we weren't required to shun him. But he promoted that narrative and people believed him. And it was interesting, and I and he repeated it so often that I think he came to believe it himself, even though he knew technically it wasn't true. Um, so it was searing to have that amount of publicity when we went to school. People knew all about our business, and of course, we were taught never to air your dirty laundry in business, which it was not just um, you know a lot of people teach that, but it was it was very uh, strong for us. Um, so it was humiliating. It was embarrassing. And then the fact that so much of it was a lie and that he he was getting all of this sympathy while he was being so violent at home was um, maddening. It seemed very unfair. Um, it just it, it was just disorienting. Like, how can this happen? How can there be such a different narrative publicly than the, than what's going on privately? Yeah. And I want to, I want to get into that in a moment, but I also wonder, uh, you know, cause I mean, this all started because of, of the church, you know, taking these actions, whether they're warranted or not, I, I, who, who knows, I, I'm not getting into that particular part, but it's all because of it, the church's actions. So how, how supportive was the church and the community of your family? You talked about how you know, your mom, you, the, the food was being taken and you guys were kind of moving around. 
was the church supporting you guys through all of these things? Because I guess if you think about like the stereotype when it comes to Amish, it's that it's, you know, it's a tight community that, you know, somebody's barn burns down and they build a barn for the community or for that family. Were you dealing with, you know, a community that was supporting you guys or was it kind of, we made this decision then figure out how to deal with everything. So as a child, I'm not sure of the entirety of it, but it certainly felt like the latter, like figure it out for yourself. Um, I know that we went with, I, I know that we did not have money. I know that there was a doubt about whether we would. My mother went to work. She had to, she tried to borrow money from my father-in-law to get a car because my father took away the car and took away the checkbook and he wouldn't do that. And he was a member. Um, and I think she eventually was able to borrow money from her parents. And then she used that to go and work in my grandmother had a small business uh, at the farmer's market. And so she worked a couple of days a week there to try and support us. And then um when we moved away, when we fled, she worked for my grandmother and then she worked for my uncle in his business. And then we all worked. So at fifth grade, I was punching a time clock. We all worked for money and to help support the family. My two oldest brothers um, contributed a lot. They were eventually paid back by her, but um, were, were forced to support. I think that the church loaned money for her to get a mortgage on a house so that so when we fled the house we lived with my grandparents for six months I think they provided the mortgage and then at some point when we had to flee that house for a time period we lived in my uncle's basement so there was some there was some help but to be honest mostly it felt like we were on our own like figured out and um you know what I, I remember one of the members it really offended me one of the Women members said at the time, if my mother had just been a little more submissive, none of this would have happened. And mm. I think, I mean, you know, that, that's just a, um, I think a lot of people have that misunderstanding about domestic violence. Like if you would just do something different, then it wouldn't happen. And so, um, you know, it's not, it's not personal to her, but it certainly, that made an impression on me as a child. Like what? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that's that's I I hate to hear that part for for sure. And the other part that you were mentioning earlier was just about how you know we we've touched on a little bit of it, and of course your book goes into to way more detail. But you know your your dad kidnapping the your mom and some of the kids, you know, terrorizing you guys and chasing you guys around, um, you know, taking money, all this type of stuff. And at the same time, with most of these court cases, they were either being dismissed or he was found not guilty. So I just wonder what that felt like when you knew with all this stuff happening and, you know, you coming from a, you know, this patriarchal society. And it seemed like even the, the courts were against you and, and, you know, following that same thing. So what, what was that like? It seemed like, yeah, there was, there's just, just like from the community, there wasn't a lot of support going on in very many places. And that's uh that's terrible. It felt despairing. It felt hopeless. And it was crazy making. And particularly the last one with his criminal trial. Um, you know, I tell this, the story in there of, of he admitted what he did and he admitted he planned it for a couple of days. And he cried on the stand and um, testified about why he did it. And the jury let him off. 
And it was just, it was like, okay, so nobody is going to hold him accountable. And that was uh, just an indescribable feeling. It was like, we couldn't ever get out of that nightmare. Yeah. I, I, that, I, that's just terrible. I hate it. And I wonder, you know, this is the last question I have when it comes to this, this particular topic. And it's just kind of the, the overarching topic of, of why, you know, was it, did, why, why do you think this happened? Why do you think that your dad did all of this? Was it because he truly felt that the church was bad once he was removed? Was it something, you know, more about just trying to get back at them once they, they kicked him out? Or I just wonder, it may be a question that you never really gets answered, but why, why do you think he resorted to the things that he did? And there's not excuses for it, but no, right. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, so I have a couple theories about it. Oh, uh, one thing I know for sure is that my father was raised in a very harsh environment. Um, probably what we would call abusive today, maybe not back then. And which he never complained about, but when I listen to the stories, it just sounds horrific to me. So I think there is, I think there was some damage from that. I also think he was raised in this culture that was all about his entitlements. And so much like any domestic abuser, when you run into any frustration with that, he only had one way of dealing with it, which was force. And um, so and so why did he blow it up? Um, I think there's more to the story. I talk about that just a tiny bit in the book. Um, they in a newspaper article I came across, the church threatened him with some information they had on him if he wrote another book or did a movie deal. Um, overall, the other thing is it happened during the midlife crisis years, his early 40s. So I think it was part of a midlife crisis. I suspect, I have no way of proving this, I suspect he didn't really want to be in the church. He always talked about being free and being, if he'd been in, alive during the pioneer days, he would have gone out west. And I suspect that he couldn't just say, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm out of here. And so he, he blamed somebody else or he, you know, he created a scenario where they would kick him out, but I don't, I'm, I don't really know. I'm not even sure if he could say for sure. In, in, I guess I said, there was the last question, but I got another one and truly wrapping that part up. If, if people outside of, you know, your family outside of the church that he was fighting with would meet him, what, uh, I mean, what kind of person was he? He must've had to have been very, charismatic and and uh he, he was able to get a lot of people on his side so i you know people l listen to these type of stories you know i've had people on that you know have followed cult leaders and then of course from the outside after you hear things you're like well that person's crazy but that's not what it seems like when things are happening so talk a little bit about you know his personality outside of all of this yeah that's a really good point you raise um he was very charming um, he's a very good neighbor. He brings uh, vegetables around to people. He, he's a good storyteller. Um, he says things with um, a great deal of certainty. And I think anytime somebody does that, it's hard to believe you think if I were speaking with that certainty, I would be right. Like I would know what I was talking about. Um, and so it's very convincing. And he is a very pleasant. Um, he's a very pleasant person when you're not on the other side of of that. And a lot of people like him. And you know, he can be very charming and, and is certainly very convincing. Yeah. And I want to now get to, to your story. Once you, I guess, get to high school, we're, we're talking about how, again, that you, you weren't really 
you want hang out with friends you weren't really out in the outside world you know people were dressing playing they were driving you know black cars and and it was it was very old school but you did a pretty new school thing you kind of did a complete 180 talk about uh that first first time with with planes how, how did that happen how did you go from your book plane to plane i feel like that's uh had to be quite the uh quite the change and quite the interesting thing for your family to uh, to grapple with too yeah it was and so i have to set that up a little bit because it sounds like it was kind of sudden with the plane but it actually started so when when everything happened with my father it really caused me to question everything i had been taught um and then by the time i was in sixth grade i really identified with my mother's situation i was like i didn't ever want to be left with six kids and no means of support and so I decided that I was going to make my own money. I was going to be financially independent, which doesn't sound like a big deal today, but that was a big deal. That was like, you know, a 180 degree change. Then I got into eighth grade and um, I won a cross country race, um, mostly because I think I was the only girl to finish. It was a pretty arduous race, but I got recruited for the high school cross country team and by this time, I had decided if I was going to be financially independent, um, I probably should go to college. But I didn't know anything about that because we didn't typically go to college. And my dad never wanted any of his children to go to college. He, he always said, if eighth grade was good enough for me, it's good enough for you and really discouraged it. And but I figured I would have to. And my oldest brother, who really smart and a real uh, uh, independent thinker he just kind of knew things and he read a lot. And so um, he told me what classes to take in high school. He said, take all the hardest classes, take four years of math, four years of science, all the AP or honors classes you can take. And so I did, I just listened to him. I didn't know any better. And I probably wouldn't have taken those classes if he hadn't told me. So I'm running cross country. Um, I was doing well in that. I ran track and then I started running marathons and then um, my brother started taking flying lessons because he was always kind of interested in different things. And he was making his own money. Um, well, we, were, we were all working, but he was so he was taking. And so he, he was always one of these people that if he was doing something that he wanted other people to do it. So he talked me into taking flying lessons and I was like, OK, I'll go try it. So I do. I don't particularly like it. I get airsick. I was afraid of crashing. And and you have to remember, I was in 10th grade. I couldn't drive yet. I didn't have my driver's license. I'm riding my bike there. He was driving me. But I just kept doing it. I didn't know why. I was like, um, but it but it was a positive thing. So amidst all the negative publicity, I wanted to be known for something good. It felt like an antidote to all this shame and humiliation. So I just kept doing it. I didn't know why I was doing it. I couldn't really afford to. I, I made enough money to um, fly like once a month. So that's how I got into flying. And then it and it led to other things. It certainly did. So you got into it through that. And then apparently at some point you spoke to a military recruiter and started, you know, that pathway too. So talk about, because you got two different, two different worlds when it comes to flying, you were in the military and completed missions. I think it was in the golf, the golf, area. And then after that, you were a commercial pilot. So let's start with the uh, your time in the, the armed services. Yeah, so it actually so it started in high school. So I'd been doing all these things. I've been doing the running, thinking I was going to get a running scholarship to go to college. And I was taking all the classes to get into 
um, a good college. And then I started taking flying lessons, which I had no idea. So all of that's background. So one day in 11th grade, I'm standing at my locker right before Thanksgiving break. And I have no idea what I'm going to do in homeroom the next period because I, I, everything is done, right? And there's an announcement over the loudspeaker that says a cadet from the United States Air Force Academy is going to be in the guidance counselor's office at 11 if you want to come hear him speak. And so from our background, we're pacifists. We don't join the military. I mean, even the men don't. Certainly the women do not. I have no idea what this is. I'm like, Air Force Academy. I was like, well, that sounds like maybe it has something to do with airplanes. And I've got nothing better to do. So why the heck not? So I walk into the guidance counselor's office and this cadet says it's hard to get into. These are the only three things I remember from he probably talked for an hour. He said it's hard to get into. It's free. And they pay you $487 a month. I'm like, woohoo. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, it was like winning the lottery. And so then I go next door and I look at the um, the catalogs for the Air Force Academy. And it shows cadets skating at the private winter retreat. And then it shows them skiing. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is for me. <laughs> and, you know, really having no idea of of what exactly it was like. And so I set about the process to get an appointment and to get a congressional nomination and an appointment. And I got in and that, so that's how I entered the military. And I got there in 1982, just as the third class with women had graduated. So it was still pretty early and still a lot of um, pushback um, about women in the military. And then I went to pilot training after graduation and uh, we flew T-37s and the supersonic uh, jet derivative, the T-38 in pilot training. And then in during my military career, I flew the KC-135, which is an air refueling airplane. And this was before it was legal for women to be in combat. Um, and then, as you said, I went to the Gulf War. I served in the Gulf War in theater as an aircraft commander. And then I went back... Um, after the Gulf War ended, then I went to Saudi Arabia and um, did a, a stint there supporting the combat air patrols over Iraq. Yeah, well, you, I, what I say to that is you need to write a book when it comes to that world, because I have spoken with one of the first women that was a uh, force fighting forest wildfires, the first one of the first women on ESPN. And I know that is a, a challenge. That's a battle. And that's a whole conversation we could have. But, you know, your book is about your your childhood. So that's why we, we're having such a small conversation about such a, a big topic. So hopefully I, I think there's probably a lot more to that story if I uh, if I can guess. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that's a whole memoir. And as you know, you know, memoir takes up. Uh, a specific slice of your life and um so yeah all right well i yeah i do think we could have a whole conversation on that so maybe uh maybe maybe to come but i want you now to talk about that memoir what made you decide to to write it to begin with i think that's a, a good place to start so I had two main reasons. One was an accountability project. I wanted to uh, correct the story that my father had told. That always bothered me. Um, and then the second part was um, I wanted to write about the mystical experiences that I had. I had this experience of feeling like I was, um, that I had a tutor, that I had a guide along the way. And, um, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about, um, what does he say? 
follow your bliss and doors will open where once there were only walls. And I had that distinct experience. Um, and Rumi says, live life as if everything were rigged in your favor. And so I've had that experience. And I wanted to write about that in a very um, practical way, um, that this is what it looked like. This is how it happens. And also, um, you know, they say follow your bliss, but it's often pretty arduous. It's not necessarily very blissful. So I call it following the call of your wild soul. And so that was the second half of it. Set the record straight and then talk about this. Um, talk about my experiences on this path and the way things that open that um, and, and show up in a way that are completely unimaginable. I couldn't have ever set a goal as a child to get into the Air Force Academy because I didn't know it existed, mm-hmm. had no idea. And that only opened up because I had done all these other things that by the time I heard about it, I was prepared for the door that opened. So have you done a lot of writing before this? I mean, that's just... I mean, writing a book is not easy. I mean, there's tons of people and I've talked to tons of people that have an amazing story, but that doesn't mean that they're able to tell it in a, in a concise way that people want to read. So how did you, uh, how did you tackle that? So I had written a book before I wrote a book about, um, uh, uh, parenting methods of this really gifted teacher. So I had the experience of of going through that process before, but that was nonfiction. So that's different than writing about a, a story. Um, so I went about it. Um, you know, mine was chronological, so that made it pretty easy. And then I just had to think about the themes, and um, and then I had a, a phenomenal editor um, because half the battle is what you cut out. I mean, that's as important to the story as what is what is in there to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. And and in the people that I talk to when it comes to their memoir and definitely about, you know, traumatic experiences, it, people normally kind of fall into one or one of two camps. The writing is, you know, therapeutic and help them get through, you know, some of those feelings that they had had in the past and kind of work it out. Some people, they've already kind of gotten through everything. They just want to get it down on paper. Um, what was it? What was the writing process like for you kind of talking about all of these uh, traumatic experiences? Yeah, so um, uh, mostly not therapeutic. I had mostly worked through a lot of it before. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest thing was in doing the research was seeing how profoundly my siblings had been emotionally and sometimes physically abused. And there were several days where I simply couldn't write. I just couldn't. Um, I think the only thing in terms of processing, my father was always a terrifying person to say no to or to stand up to. And so there's something when you speak your truth about what someone did in private, uh, internally, like here I was in my 50s. So what did I have to fear from him? Right. But it's a terrifying. And so for me to say this is what happened and sort of to speak back, that was a, a watershed for me. That was like, oh, I can do this and I won't disappear. Overall has, because again, it's a, it's a world that uh, is relatively closed off. You know, once you wrote the book, did you get, I mean, was your family supportive of, of, of the undertaking? Um, yeah, most were. My mother was, um, uh, um, she, she was like, I wrote the whole thing before I told anybody about it because I did not want other people's. I wanted to speak from my own voice. And I think that's particularly from the background I come from, but also I think that's a difficult thing. Like whose voice is in my head, whose story am I writing? 
So I, I did tell them afterwards. And yes, mostly uh, not everybody was happy about it. My father certainly was not happy about it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think one of the most satisfying for things for me about the book was um, I've had numerous people write to me who've had similar experiences or who have been caught up in a world where um, th- some of the same mindsets have a hold of them. And for them to read it and um, I, I had one person write to me, she had tried to overcome something for years and it suddenly let go and she was liberated. And so that was really, really satisfying to me that other people um, got something personal out of it for themselves. Uh, that's, that has to be powerful for sure. I think there's so much more to, to your story. Just like I said, we could have a whole conversation on, you know, being, being in the military at the time that you were in your, your experiences there, but we kind of have to leave it there. I want you, I want you to tell us where people can find the book, exactly what it's called and how people can connect with you as a whole. Sure. The book is called From Plane to Plane, My Mennonite Childhood, A National Scandal and an Unconventional Sword to Freedom. Mm-hmm. And you can find it online. It's on uh, uh, it's it's in both um, softcover, hardcover, Kindle and audiobook. You can find it on uh, indie books. You can find it on Amazon.com. You can find it on Books a Million, Barnes and Noble. And um, I think I said audiobook. It's available in audio form as well. Very good. And then do you have a, you have a website as well, right? I do. Yeah. So I talk about, um, you know, that, the path of um, navigation skills uh, for your, your inner guidance. I, I write about that and um, I'm passionate about that. And my website is the flying club.com T H E F L Y I N G C L U B.com. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed it. So that was Patty Bear. Amazing story. I think that we just touched on the surface of the story. I was lucky enough to read her book, and there's so much more to it. There's so much more explanation to exactly what happened in her childhood and and the the court cases and, and some of the uh, things that her father did to the family. Uh, there's a lot more when it comes to her life um, as a pilot and being in the military. Uh, I urge you to check out her book if you're at all interested in, in just learning a little bit more about the Mennonite faith, learning about uh, somebody who, who broke some, some barriers uh, in the military, um, just reading a, a, a story of, of triumph. So really, really uh, appreciative of Patty's time. We have had discussions about uh, her coming back and talking more about her time uh, in uh, in the Air Force and, and as a pilot. Uh, that's something that you can look forward to if we can get everything lined up. Um, but, uh, yeah, check out her book. The link will be in the show note to that. urge you to check that out. This is your first time listening to this podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Please follow along with with uh, us as well, Not in the Huff Podcast on Instagram, Not in the Huff Jackson Huff on Facebook. Uh, go leave a five-star uh, rating on Apple and on Spotify. would really appreciate that. Even more amazing, leave a written review on Apple. Really, really uh, thankful for, for those who, who do that. Uh, but if you do nothing else, catch us next week. Take it away, Chris. This has been Not in a Huff with Jackson Huff. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us next time where we will interview another amazing guest who is sure to make you laugh, 
or make you think, or hey, maybe even both. But until then, keep being awesome.